are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Welcome back, Manufactured listeners. This is the last episode of season one. Can you believe it? We conceived of this project back in April, launched it in June, and now here we are, and it's been quite the whirlwind ride. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for season two, and you can follow us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com for updates and details. This is a passion project, and we could really use your support. Subscribe on iTunes and consider leaving us a review. This will help other people find our show and spread the word about what we're doing. We're also going to be launching some new ways for you to support us, and we're excited to share more details about that over the coming weeks. So before we wrap up season one, we wanted to share with you some reflections and do a bit of inward-facing review or an inward look at the manufactured project. Jesse and I each had our own goals and reasons for wanting to start this podcast, and the end of season one seemed like the perfect place to pause and take stock. Personally, my goal of this podcast is not uh, something very, uh, very firm or not something very. For me, it's more like a journey. I have questions, and I want to find out answers for those questions. So for me, this podcast is more like a journey of exploring. More specifically, I'm, I'm I am exploring the possibilities of sustainability within the current system. In other words, I'm looking for answers to this question without throwing over the current globalized supply chain or the current globalized system. How much space we could have to um, to make it more sustainable, and how much space we could have to improve sustainability in all the levels of supply chain. So for me, this is really a journey of discovering all these uh, possibilities. And today, if I look back, uh, we made nine episodes. I found it's uh, it's quite surprising. I had some very good uh, surprises. The first thing, what surprised me most, is the relationship between suppliers and the brand. So I was so surprised when I um, hear Pete in in episode number three to talk about a sole supplier uh, contract he signed with uh, one of his clients. I'm quite surprised that brand can do so. And also in the episode of number five and number six, when we talk about Kim from Cambodia, she mentioned uh, a five years long-term contract that a brand signed with its supplier. That is also very surprising. So for me, it's really optimistic to know it's possible for a brand to have a more partnership-oriented contract. And then... Another big surprise, uh, very good surprise, is uh, I realized that uh, so many suppliers want to make the business more sustainable and basically trying to use whatever whatever the advantages they have to leverage the negotiation with the brands. For instance, uh, in our episode number seven with Makala, she mentioned the Delhi uh, factory in Bangladesh would invest uh, much more expensive machines to have a more sustainable Delhi. Or some other factories in other episodes would develop special uh, fabrics or improve workmanship and so on. 
So all this just、uh, makes me feel quite optimistic. Like、uh, I will borrow the word from our guest Matthew from、uh, number nine episode number nine. He said, "Taking back the ownership of this part of the supply chain." I really like that. So these are the old surprises I discovered in my journey of this podcast. So for me, my goal was a little bit different to yours, Jesse. I did start with a pretty specific goal. I felt strongly that I wanted to do something that would help diversify the narrative around sustainability. I felt strongly that supplier voices are underrepresented and misunderstood within sustainability conversations, and I wasn't quite sure how to do something about that. And I'm still not totally sure. It's very much a work in progress. But I want to specify what I mean when I say diversify the merit. When I say diversify the narrative. I'm really talking about diversification in two ways. First, who has a seat at the table, but also diversifying the layers and dimensions that the people at the table actually have. And the reason why this was my goal requires me to explain a little bit about my own journey and my own story. First, so I'm going to read a little bit from an article that I published recently、um, called. How racism shapes fashion's approach to sustainability. I'm a white female millennial with Dutch and American parents. About five years ago, I went from a bleeding heart liberal with a degree in human rights to a garment factory manager in Cambodia. I thought if I wanted to be effective in sustainable fashion spaces, I needed to better understand production. Initially, I struggled with the label garment factory manager. I felt the need to qualify it. Both to myself and to friends, mostly white, left-leaning liberals back home. For example, I would say to people that I was the manager of a sustainability-minded factory. It was somehow important to point out and defend my positioning as good guy. The more I inhabited the role of factory manager, the more I realized that the sustainability challenges factory managers face are part of a larger system of asymmetrical power relations. I realized that I'd internalized certain racially rooted stereotypes about who a factory manager is, and their role as bad guy in sustainability. In other words, I had a blind spot. Mazarin Benaji, Harvard psychologist and co-author of Blind Spot: Hidden Biases of Good People, researches how when you pair two things together over and over, they come to be associated with one another. Bread goes with butter. Leaders are male. Nurses are female. Repeatedly throughout my life, factory manager was paired with sweatshops. Benaji suggests that when people are asked to reverse these associations that they've heard so repeatedly and routinely throughout their lives, they struggle. And experiencing this difficulty is what allows people to understand how deeply ingrained culture and its implicit biases really are. So gradually, I stopped qualifying my title when introducing myself to people at home. I was often met with a lot of follow-up questions, seeking to gauge whether I fell in the good guy camp or the bad guy camp. What did I think about unions? What kind of wages did my employees earn? Our unconscious perception of the factory manager of color, out to make a quick buck, pervades the way we approach sustainability. And while there are certainly factory managers out there doing bad things, and for which they must be held accountable. This implicit bias prevents us from reflecting critically on how we created this system, and by we here I mean the fashion industry as a whole, brands, and even consumers.
It prevents us from seeing and trusting the factory managers out there who are sustainable fashion allies. But we can't talk about implicit biases without also talking about power. As the Nigerian author Chimamanda Adichie articulates so well, and I've quoted this before on the podcast, but it's worth quoting again because it's just so good. Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. I want to pivot back to my journey with the title of Garment Factory Manager. After I stopped qualifying my title to friends and acquaintances back home, I usually dealt with their follow-up questions with textbook answers that satisfied the checkboxes their liberal assumptions were looking for me to fill. Yes, I thought labor unions were important. Yes, my staff earned living wages. But once, an exchange with a particularly self-righteous dinner companion led me to take a different tack. I replied that although labor unions made sense in a country with strong rule of law, in countries with corrupt governments like Cambodia, I wasn't sure whether they always represented workers' best interests. I watched the discomfort, outrage, and judgment pass over my dinner companion's face. This was enough to vilify me. She quickly changed the subject. Now, I possessed the language and vocabulary to defend myself. I was intimately familiar with the stereotypes about factory managers that I was up against. I had the power, privilege, and protection of not being reducible to a single narrative. And still, all it took was one comment on labor unions to put me in the bad guy camp. I've been reconsidering this anecdote recently as part of making this podcast because the podcast is focused on sharing underrepresented voices across the fashion supply chain. We've had factory managers on the show, industrial engineers, third-party inspection companies, freight forwarders. I mean, anyone who really exists between this space of worker and brand. And I live in fear of inadvertently enabling listeners to fill in the blanks about our guests with this single story of factory managers, with the sweatshop expose, with their implicit biases. If one comment is all it took to vilify me, how can we do justice to our guests, who usually don't have the power and protection of so many stories? So for me, that's why it's a problem that the only factory manager narrative to which consumers and sometimes even industry insiders have access is the sweatshop expose. It's incomplete. It's a single story mediated and narrated to the public by brands, filtered through racial biases that pervade the industry's approach to sustainability. It obscures the very asymmetrical power relations between brands and suppliers, enabling brands to escape public scrutiny of their buying practices, while the social responsibility spotlight is firmly placed on factories. So this is the context for why I came out of my time in Cambodia as a garment factory manager with this idea that I wanted to diversify the narrative and make sure that suppliers not only have some sort of a seat at the table within sustainability conversations, but also that their perspectives and stories that people within the industry or even consumers have access to are just a little bit more multidimensional than the sweatshop expose. So I guess if I reflect on this goal now, nine episodes in, and whether we've managed to make some progress on it through this podcast, initially I was a bit critical You know, we're trying to diversify the narrative, and yet so many of our guests are from North America or Europe. Michaela is an American who went and worked in Bangladesh for seven years, in part for a garment factory there. 
Matthew is an American who's been based in Southeast Asia for about 10 years and is now also working for a garment factory. Pete, who's from the Netherlands but owns a garment factory in Cambodia. And then Kelly and Ellen, who work for Green Design Link, which is a manufacturing company based in Peru. So on a surface level, initially, this felt like a shortcoming. And I want to be careful here because I really learned a lot from each of these conversations. And as I reflect on this tension, I, I really feel the need to, number one, acknowledge it, but also consider a little bit more deeply why this was. So the first reason is very simple, practical, our network. Um, and it's a reflection. Most of our guests throughout season one are people that come from within our own networks. And we were limited, in addition to our contacts, we were limited to people who spoke English, um, which is also in the broader conversation about sustainability, a real barrier to entry. Yeah, it's really tricky. Yeah, yeah. And it's tricky because there are even deeper barriers too. I, I thought maybe the best way to articulate it is actually to read a comment by Paula Rogers on LinkedIn, which was in response to the same article that I shared some pieces of a little bit earlier about how racism shapes fashion's approach to sustainability. So Paula Rogers just finished a thesis exploring modern slavery in India's textile and recycling industry. And these are her words. What I see is that upstream financially powerful stakeholders are given a stronger voice through being invited to the table more frequently and more readily appeased. Financially poor or downstream stakeholder views are not regularly sought and are frequently discounted when heard. Further, since downstream stakeholders are not invited to the table, they are unpracticed and inexperienced in stakeholder engagement, again further quashing their voice. Given that 80 to 90% of businesses in emerging markets operate in the informal sector, current brands, business stakeholder, worker voice mechanisms are not designed to capture the voices of so many people in the supply chain. And this quote really got me thinking because there are practical barriers to diversifying the narrative, but there are a lot of deep and fundamental barriers too. And for me, trying to figure out how to overcome that is still a work in progress, and it's going to take me some time to figure out how to be most effective. But at the same time, I feel really positive and really strongly that the conversations we had throughout season one were incredibly engaging and insightful, and I learned a lot from each of our guests in season one. The stories that each of our guests brought were, were new, and the stories that even if some of our guests had platforms elsewhere for being interviewed or for sharing their stories, th this podcast really created a space for sharing a part of their story or a, or, or a particular angle that maybe they wouldn't have had the chance to do otherwise. For me, throughout these conversations, and like you, Jesse, a couple of things became a lot more obvious. The first is how much of a leadership role suppliers actually play in sustainability conversations. When I was working for a garment factory, our factory certainly took a leadership role in pushing for sustainability with our customers, with brands. But I assumed, and again, this speaks to my implicit biases, that we were exceptional. But time and again throughout season one, we heard this story from Matthew, who works for an apparel manufacturer, pushing his customers to switch to new kinds of fabrics, to Michaela in Bangladesh and the, her employer, a garment factory, presenting their customers' brands. 
with more sustainable denim options, to Pete trying to introduce alternate dyeing techniques, to Kelly and Ellen from Green Design Link who took the lead in trying to figure out what to do with dead stock and waste. And that really speaks to how we might delineate who is responsible for what in this conversation. And I really liked the way Matthew put it, our guest Matthew, in in our last episode. So if you haven't listened to it, you should check it out. But what he says is, maybe brands should be setting the goal and the direction for sustainability. But we should be leaving suppliers more space for figuring out the details for how we get there. I mean, for most brands, their expertise really is marketing. And yet within sustainability spaces, we see a lot of very prescriptive top-down approaches coming from brands, which really doesn't play to the strengths of the various players throughout the supply chain. Which brings me to the second highlight of season one. And I guess I, I kind of knew this already, but our conversations throughout season one really just made it so obvious and front and center how, how, how important this topic is, and that's trust. And something that's become very clear to me as season one went on is that within conversations about sustainability, we need space to both applaud and critique or scrutinize actors across the supply chain. It's not as simple as good guys and bad guys. You don't have a good brand and a bad brand, a good factory and a bad factory, or even a good consumer and a bad consumer. It's never that neat. It's never that clean. And usually, people are both. And like you, Jesse, I want to look back for a minute on this episode with Kim from Cambodia, where she describes a very positive partnership model for brand-supplier relationship, which was rooted in, in a certain kind of contract. And yet, in this same example, the relationship between factory and worker left quite a bit to be desired. So for me, this example really embodies how actors can be good and bad, and how these these this complexity can coexist. We can applaud and must applaud one thing, but also scrutinize another. Which, I guess on a really practical level, speaks to the, the need to always look at, at sort of three levels. The, the, the relationship between consumer and brand, between brand and supplier, and between supplier and worker. Because these spaces or the spaces between these three levels are the glue that connect and bind the fashion supply chain together. And as a result, we are all implicated. So figuring out how and why we're succeeding or how and why we're falling short requires a certain level of vulnerability and inward reflection. And that requires trust. So For me, this speaks to the need to open up space for self-reflection at each of these levels and to do so in a way that doesn't result in actors being crucified or put in a, in a, in a good box, bad box. And, and that this is really the only way that we'll ever arrive at more shared responsibility. So the goal initially was diversifying the narrative. And that, that's still the goal for me going forward with season two. In season one, achieving that goal really just meant let's invite people on our show who don't have jobs that are commonly understood and let's have them talk about it. Case closed, goal achieved. But in season two, I want to dig, dig deeper and take that further. 
I want to be more deliberate about identifying the key ingredients for achieving trust at each of these levels. What are the enabling conditions for trust? And how do we make sure that we're always looking at all three of these levels together? Because if we look at only one, we'll fall short. Yeah, I'd um, keep exploring the possibilities of uh, sustainability within the current system, without storing over the system, how much we can do and how effective those measures or practices can work. Uh, can we eventually really do something sustainable for the planet, for our lifestyle, and for everyone in the system? So, um, yeah, I will just carry on my journey of exploring. And uh, Kim, I think we have the list of the topics of season two already, right? So when I look at the topic list, I already found uh, several I'm really interested. We will talk about consumers, different power of consumers in different markets. We will talk about some legal issues, legal topics. And we will see uh, from a historical viewpoint how Manufacturing becomes how garment manufacturing becomes what it looks uh, like today. So I'm quite uh, excited. And uh, yeah, we probably will have one or two, I hope, stories from China talking about China capital. Um, I'm really interested into this part, basically in the past 10, in the past 10 years, how China capital moving around and what does that reflect? So I'm all excited now about season two. <laughs> So on that note, we hope you'll join us for season two, and we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. And again, to get updates about exactly when that is, it'll be sometime towards the end of August, early September. But follow us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up on our website at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. And if you have ideas or suggestions for season two topics, fear not. Not all the slots are taken yet, so don't hesitate to drop us a line via our website. We'd love to hear from you and to hear your suggestions. Okay, and that's a wrap for season one. Thank you so much for your support and see you again soon. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, check out our website manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. Leave comments on Instagram or connect with us privately through our website. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show, and we'd love your help with that. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Mm-hmm.